Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 47. Be looking at verses 1 through 31. Genesis 47, verses 1 through 31. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds, and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his, uh, his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph bought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their money, I'm sorry, so they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him and the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed 
that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph brought, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priest had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priest alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, help us to take these happenings that you worked out in your own divine plan to point us to Jesus and do just that in the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a lot of weakness in the world. And one of the weaknesses that you will find, and it's prominent among African Americans, it's prominent all over the continent of Africa, is sickle cell anemia. But the funny thing about sickle cell anemia is the reason why it's so prominent is because it prevents um, malaria from doing great harm to those people. So while it is a weakness, it is also something that bears gifts. God's merciful covenant with his people comes in real world gifts that are called in the covenant, the blessing, the blessing of God. So what do God's people get for trusting in his covenant mercy? God's covenant people get covenant blessing. And that is the promise of covenant blessing in this passage and the fulfillment of covenant blessing and the hope of covenant blessing. And what we see is a greatly weakened land, a greatly weakened group, at least two groups of people, probably more, 
and a greatly weakened covenant head in Jacob. So the promise of covenant blessing in verses 1 through 12. Take away, when the greater one comes in the person and work of Jesus, you can be sure that the covenant blessings are through him. And what we see at the beginning in verses 1 through 6 is a presentation of Pharaoh the greater. I meant in the literary sense, of course, Joseph's family is being presented to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh is the greater one. Joseph presents his family to Pharaoh in verses 1 and 2, setting up the blessing in verse 1. And Pharaoh in verse 2 may believe he is, kind, he is the kind and generous one, and he is. Now, notice his, his um, uh, setup here is, is that he is in the one-up position. Of course, he should be. He is the king of the land. And they are in the one-down position. And then Pharaoh blesses the covenant family in verses 3 through 6. Now, he asks about their occupation. And we know from earlier report of Moses that the Egyptians find shepherds abominable. They don't want to hang out with them for some reason. I don't know what the reasoning was, but there it is. And so asking about their occupation kind of underscores his power. Verses 3 and 4. So he makes this magnanimous offering of separation and servitude. Go and give them the finest of the land in Goshen. And that, I think, was very sincere on his part. He certainly appreciated what Joseph has done for him. But he, they were separated, and that was a kindness on God's part to keep them from being swept up in Egyptian idolatry, uh, though they still fell. But that's for another time and another day. But what we see in verses 7 through 12 is not Pharaoh the greater. We see Pharaoh the lesser. Joseph presents the covenant head to Pharaoh in the beginning of verse 7. Uh, and it's kind of a little bit jumping around here. But what we see in verse 7 at the beginning is jo Jacob's weakness before Pharaoh's strength. First of all, that's okay. He can, he can participate. <laughs> we, we like children in, in the Presbyterian Church. So, uh, Jacob's weakness before Pharaoh's strength. He had to be stood up by Joseph before Pharaoh. And then he tells about his days, about how unstable his day. He talks about sojourning. That's just, that's just another way of saying not just that we went on journeys, but that we are a pilgrim people. We're constantly moving. Uh, and he talks about how they've been evil. And what he means is not that a bunch of darkness has come, but that bad things have happened along the way. That's what he means by sort of calamitous. Um, and when we look at this weakness, doesn't it remind us of that verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 10, it's there in your sheets. For the sake of Christ, then, Paul says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong, right? Because the grace of God in Christ Jesus is at work. Psalm 39, 4, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. And Jacob is certainly 
underscoring that before Pharaoh. Jacob then, in verses 11 through 12, humbly accepts the help of one of his younger sons in Joseph. He accepts the help of, uh, sorry, uh, of Joseph settling him in, in the land there. Now, I want to get to this fact, and this is where it's Pharaoh the lesser. The covenant head, Jacob, blesses Pharaoh. We see it twice, first at the end of verse 7, and then in verse 10. And what that means is it's a Hebrew literary device that scholars today call an inclusio. It just means bookends. We see it up there, and then we see it down there. That means everything in between is really important, and it, it, it's the meaning of what that what the blessing is. But what I want you to note here is how boldly Jacob steps into his role. He blesses Pharaoh. I thought Jacob was the one suffering under famine. That's kind of brazen, it seems like, in a worldly sense. But in a godly sense, it's the most humble thing he could do. Because under God's authority, he understands that he is the conduit of blessing. And Pharaoh needs to be blessed so that they can be blessed. His family won't survive, right? Luke, uh, Jesus says in Luke eleven thirty two, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here, meaning himself. And that's represented. Something greater than Pharaoh is here in Jacob. And when the greater one comes in the person and work of Jesus, you can be sure that covenant blessings are through him and him alone because they only come through Jacob here. Of all the people in the land of Egypt and Canaan, this frail old man who's suffering under famine blesses Pharaoh. John 14, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's exclusive. There is no other way except through Jesus. There's no Jewish way. There's no Muslim way. There's no Hare Krishna way. There's no New Age way. There's no spirituality way. It's only through Jesus. And if you don't go through Jesus, you go on that broad way that leads to death that Jesus warns everyone about. But God's merciful covenant with his people comes in real world gifts called the blessing. What do God's covenant people get for trusting his covenant mercy? God's covenant people get covenant blessing. And we see that it's through the covenant head who is Jacob's role is fulfilled in Jesus. And then we see the fulfillment of covenant blessing in the sort of shortened sense uh, and then down the line is fulfilled more in Jesus. Since the greater one has come, you now give out greater blessing to the nations. 
So the covenant family blesses, blesses the nations in verses 13 through 22. And those nations at this time and this famine means Egypt and Canaan as a whole, not just Israel's uh, family, okay? And what we see in verses 13 through 19 is the desperation of the nations. In verses 13 and 14, we see that they have initially felt the bite, that there's no food at all anywhere. The pain is more severe uh, than ever as far as their experience is concerned. As they, as they say, they languish by reason of the famine. You hear the word famine, famine, famine. It's trying to communicate. It's really a big deal and people are hungry. John 1, 10 through 13 says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When the nations feel desperate, when you feel desperate, when you have felt desperate in your life, that's when we are in the best position normally as human beings, normally, to turn to God. And so the covenant family blesses. Joseph gathered up all the money and in his wisdom, uh, his covenant wisdom, because he's got that special relationship with God, um, he begins saving lives. And yet there's increasing desperation because the food's not coming back, just like the way he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, right? And it goes through year by year, verses 15 through 19, the increasing desperation. And so what Joseph does uh, this is not necessarily uh, underscoring redistributionist policies in every single case. What we have here is a benevolent, godly dictator. Just because someone has power doesn't, we know for sure, they're not necessarily benevolent and they're not godly. But here we have Joseph. He's gathering up all of their um, their money, their livestock, and finally themselves and their land. But what does he do? At the end, he gives, he gives it back to him, four-fifths, a fifth going to Pharaoh. And more than likely, that was it to keep things like this from happening again, to have a storehouse of food so if they had to do it again, they would be able to do it. It's not about taxing the people. It's a crisis moment. And it demanded someone that, not that had Marxist dreams, but someone that was benevolent and kind to people. And we know the record of Marxism around the world is not benevolent and kind. More people have been killed by Marxist policies than under any other kind of regime. Hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions. Blood all over the place. But this was an emergency situation and thank God they had Joseph because he wasn't there to manipulate the people and just exercise his power. He used his power mercifully. And that's what we have to learn about Christ through Jacob and Joseph and the covenant family here. All power in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. But what does he do with that power? 
He uses it mercifully to save people, to care for them. And, and we see this, interestingly, as uh, down in verses 20 and through 22, we see in keeping many people alive. Of course, we saw the severity of the famine emphasized all over the place. And then we see cult- even cultural impact. Joseph uh, honored what Egypt had done for their priests. Now, that's a false religion, but he wasn't there to rip the culture apart. He wasn't about dismantling anything because he, he, he knew that something about that because the religious tie and the cultural tie are important. And the way you go about bringing that change wasn't by a whole hog dismantling it. So he wanted to keep that stability, especially in a time of crisis. And then the covenant family blesses Pharaoh. Now, this blessing of Pharaoh of getting the fifth and all of that provides for a stable government. And you need a stable government in order to prosper. And there's multiplying blessings for the people. They got back uh, most of what they harvest, according to Joseph. And the people bless Joseph uh, in verses 25 and 26. Um, They say, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. Isn't that how it works? We are saved by Jesus and then we give our hearts and our wills and everything over to him when we truly understand the mercy that he has given us. And not only do they praise him, but Joseph had made it stable for future generations, as I said, as we already alluded to. So verse 26, so Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt. uh, And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. And the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. And what we see here is an example of how mercy of the mercy of Christ impacts us and we can impact others. Look at Proverbs 1130. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Now that's interesting. The fruit is a tree. Usually the other way around, right? But what is that referring to, that tree of life? It's referring back to the garden prior to sin entering the world. Do you realize that what God is saying about you is that the fruit of your life is a tree of life to others? And we see the covenant family doing that right here. Revelation 22, verses one and two. This is the tree of life. The, end, uh, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And that's why this is essential business, what we're doing right here this morning. This is essential. Do not let anyone say otherwise. I don't care if they're the president of the United States. What we are doing here is essential. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's your mission. Just by you being here, that's what you are. Since the greater one has come, 
You now give out the greater blessing to the nations. Just what's modeled here with Joseph, Jacob, and the covenant family. God's merciful covenant with his people comes in real world gifts called the blessing. What do God's covenant people get for trusting his covenant mercy? God's covenant people get covenant blessing. And we saw the promise of it, the fulfillment of it, and how they responded to Pharaoh and provided for Israel, Canaan, and Egypt. And then we have the hope of covenant blessing in verses 27 through 31. Since the greater one has come and has been raised from the dead, you can know for sure that the blessing is an indestructible life. First, the, pleasant, the present blessing through the covenant head. The covenant family prospers in verse 27. And it's kind of hearkening back to the first commandment to man in, in the garden. And God blessed them, Genesis 128. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And yes, we struggle with that dominion these days and we err to one side or the other, either too much dominion, which is domination, or we just let things go and it becomes a mess. We're always working against that mess from happening. But what is it that we're about to be about doing? We're about multiplying, filling, and subduing the earth. That's what God is restoring us to in Christ. Now, I don't mean that in just a present day way, but God is leading us to a new heaven and new earth, right? But what Jesus is doing is not just saving our souls for heaven, He's saving us so that we can be his people here on earth as well, okay? That God's will would be done as we pray in heaven, as, on earth as it is in heaven, okay? And so in verse 28, we see the emphasis on the covenant head's role. Um, where he, it says, um, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years and talks about his days. And so we see uh, the covenant head's role is for others. It's emphasized in Ephesians 5.28 about the role of men and women. And we know all the stuff about submission, but look at what the husband's called to do. Husbands, love your wives. And what's the standard of that love? As Christ loved the church and gave and gave, and gave himself up for her. And then in verses uh, 29 through 31, we see future blessings through the covenant head. And we see an oath being made. It's a life oath in verse 29. And this oath is based squarely on a belief in the resurrection. Now, it's hard to see because it's not blatant here. But why is Jacob making such a fuss with Joseph about going to be buried with where his fathers were buried? Well, first of all, we see a covenant connection to the past and this helps us to see this. Jesus is talking, and we talked about this, I think, last week. Um, 
about with the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. They give him this challenge. This woman was married. One died and then seven, you know, seven other men she married and they all died. Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Because they're trying to show, hey, here's proof, Jesus. Right. And he says, you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't know the Bible. You don't know God. Right. And then he says, Jesus, in explaining to them, Luke 20, verses 37 through 38, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. So even though we die, we live. And there's a, there's a, a time coming when there will be a totally indestructible life. Now, there's a connection with the past, so that's why for us it's always been important families in our circles, in Presbyterian circles. Not to say it's not important to others, but we have doctrinal reasons why this is important. The hope here that Jacob is going back, because he, he knows that that's the land of promise, Israel, as far as he knows. That's, that's why he's going back, because he want, in the resurrection, he wants to be there. Now, he was limited because really it's the whole earth that God's going to be changing. But for as far as he knew, God had promised the land of Israel to them. So he wants, or the land of Canaan at that time. It wasn't Israel at that time. And then this hope is sealed on oath in verses 30 and 31. The promise was made on oath and the oath, look at what it does. It leads to prayer for the future. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Since the greater one has come and has been raised from the dead, you can know for sure that the blessing is an indestructible life. You can be pretty bold based on that. And so what do we do with this resurrection life now? Well, look at Jesus' last words in his prayer, once among his last words, right before he went to the cross. John 17, 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, and that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. You are loved as Jesus is loved. You have the power of an indestructible life, ultimately. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us that power by reminding us of the indestructible life we have in Jesus' resurrection, which is the first fruit of the resurrection that we will experience, where we will be raised and and without sin and be able to use our bodies appropriately for your glory and for our enjoyment of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.